0: You know, I used to believe that there was treasure buried right there. This is the cul-de-sac in Arlington Heights that I grew up at. In fact, I lived in that house from the time I was three to the time I moved off to college. And oh, the memories that I had of this spot. We used to play at this cul-de-sac, me and my friends. We'd play and play and play from morning until night. And I'll never forget the day that the big kids on the street told us younger kids that there was treasure buried in the center of the cul-de-sac. At first, we told the big kids, We don't believe you. We know you're just pulling our leg. But eventually, as time went by, each of us started to wonder if in fact it was true. This cul-de-sac had a, a mystical, wonderful quality about it as each of us looked at it as Treasure Island. We confessed to each other on one fateful day that we had all become convinced that it was true. There was treasure right there. Well, with great excitement, we ran off and got the shovel and came back and started to dig and dig, and we dug and dug, but there was only dirt. There was no treasure. It was all a lie. We had believed a myth. You know, many of us live on an island called Christianity. We believe it to be real. We believe that it's a a life of eternal treasure, a, a life of wonder and mystery with friendship with this very real God. But there are times all of us doubt Times when we wonder if it's just wishful thinking, if it's all a hoax. Well, you know, folks, it's time that we find out. It's time that we grab the shovel and dig down into the facts to discover once and for all if it's wishful thinking or if, in fact, it's really true. So I I have a question for you this Easter, and that is, have you gone Digging. Have you grabbed the shovel? That is, have you ever gone digging for the truth about Jesus Christ? Have you ever applied your mind and analyzed the evidence? You know what's interesting? I find most Americans have to say, no, I've never gone digging. Even most Christians would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and we sing it and we shout it, but if asked, okay, well, what evidence do you base that conviction on? They'd say, oh, I don't know. evidence? I don't know. I just believe it. And to skeptics, you know, who would say, I, I'm sorry, but I don't buy it. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. If you'd say, oh, yeah, oh, well, what, what evidence have you based that conviction on? They would say, oh, it just sounds unreasonable to me. Yes, but have you looked at the evidence? And they would have to say, No, I haven't. We're going digging. Are you ready? Your man, he says say, It's awful early to engage my brain. Jeff, I'm not sure if I can do that. Well, I'm praying that God wakes you up unusually early this morning because we're going to use our brains because the Lord provides evidence. You know, This week, I almost used this shovel as a lethal weapon. Did you know that Uh, we are battling raccoons at the Griffin House these days? A couple weeks ago, I trapped one that was living in our shed and brought it to a distant forest preserve and released it. And then again on Tuesday, I was going out to lunch with some of our staff, and all of a sudden in the car, I get a phone call from my wife and. She is in hysterics. I mean, I can hear the panic in her voice as she lets me know that we now have a raccoon in the house. I hear my children, a couple of them screaming, one of them crying. I freaked out. You know, there's, there's something that happened in me, that fight-or-flight mechanism. It's amazing how you can get a phone call and instantly every part of you is alive in this protective instinct. This dad is going to save the day and drive away the evil beast, you know, just came over me. And I did this U-turn in the middle of the highway, and I floored it heading home, formulating in my mind that I'm going to use the shovel to drive the beast from the house, you know, and everything was going great. Until I, as I continued to try to calm down my family, it seemed that their squeals turned to laughter. And together they, in chorus, they said, April falls, dad. (laughs) Can you believe those dirty dogs, huh? (laughs) I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. So you you just learned something about me. I am gullible. In case you didn't know that, I'll just confess it. I'm gullible. There. There. And it makes me wonder, am I gullible in regards to my conviction about Jesus Christ? I believe that Jesus Christ is God come to earth in human flesh, that he is the Savior of the world, the only Savior, the only hope by which people can find life eternal. Is that just wishful thinking? Well, let's find out let's analyze the evidence. I I want to read to you a verse. Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says this. God has given proof. I like the word proof. It's an evidence word. God has given proof to all of us by raising Jesus from the dead this was spoken by the apostle paul in the city of athens greece to a group of intellectuals philosophers scholars thinkers and paul says you people need proof and god has graciously provided the resurrection from the dead of jesus christ was a gift from god to us in order to give us the proof that we need do do you think that the resurrection would, imagine if you lived back then, had you uh, known this Jesus, and you heard his claims, and it sounds a little bit like the rants of a madman, and you're like, sorry buddy, I can't quite buy it, and he says, well, I understand, it's tough, but I'm going to die on the cross publicly, three days later I'm going to climb out of the grave, and had you witnessed Jesus dead, and then saw him alive, it would have worked. You would have said, I was wrong, you were right, you are who you say you are. Proof. And you say, yeah, well, that's great for those in the first century that were there at the time to witness it, but we're separated from that event by 2,000 years. And that separation makes that evidence not very useful to us today. And there's where I would disagree. Folks, the, the resurrection of Christ is proof for us every bit as much as it was proof for those in the first century. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at three events, three verifiable historical events, things that occurred in the first century that will demonstrate to us that the resurrection is a verifiable historical event, all right? All right. And these three events that I want to study with you, I have symbols for each of them. We remember pictures better than we do words even. So let me, let me show you the first one. It is revolution, revolution. In Jerusalem and then beyond, in the first century, around the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a revolution exploded. The cause of Christ grew with exponential expansion. This uh, symbol is what's called the Jerusalem Cross, Maybe you've seen it before, ancient cross. And the center cross symbolizes Jerusalem, and the four little crosses symbolize the four corners of the earth. It's a picture of the expanse of this Christian movement, starting in Jerusalem, the place of Christ's death and resurrection, expanding rapidly to the four corners of the world. Folks, there was a revolution. Around the time of the resurrection, the people who did have firsthand access to the evidence, who could look in the empty tomb, who could speak with the resurrected Christ, they voted with their lives in mass quantity that it is true. Let me, let me read you a verse. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. This is after the resurrection, 50 days after the resurrection, Peter's speaking in Jerusalem, the same city and he speaks to the crowds. He says, God has given proof. Whoops, that's the wrong one. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Peter says, it's Jesus' resurrection. It's a fact, and you're all Witnesses of that fact. Uh, to what? In what sense are they witnesses of that fact? Think about it. Those who were in Jerusalem at that time, first of all, would have heard of the arrival of Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday, the week before uh, his resurrection. That that was big news. This very popular figure was uh, greeted with a great crowd that gathered. They knew that this Jesus was coming, claiming to be king of all kings. I mean, it was the, the hot topic. And, and he came and he was arrested big news, and he was crucified. This execution, public execution of Jesus Christ would have been the talk of the town. Everybody who had the guts to look upon his bloody body would have gone to that spot in town and looked at Jesus dying. They knew he died. They saw it. They also knew about his claims to going to resurrect in three days. And so there was this anticipation following his death. In fact, they saw that the Romans placed guards there at the tomb to make sure there was no funny business going on. And despite the Roman effort to prevent anything from happening, something happened. And the tomb was open. And you can bet the crowds rushed to that spot and peered into the tomb and looked in. And they realized, I don't know what's going on here, but he ain't in there anymore. And then people started to say that they had met him. Over 500 people, according to God's word, met the resurrected Jesus Christ, talked with him, walked with him, enjoyed his company. And folks, if they weren't one of the 500 themselves, they knew multiple of those 500 and would have grabbed him by the shoulders and say, now look me in the eyes and don't pull my leg. You're telling me you just saw him. Yeah. And so Peter was able to say, let's, let's be frank. We're all witnesses of this resurrection. And the result of all of these people having access to that information was immense the revolution took off acts 241 it says those who accepted peter's message when he preached that day were about 3000 3000 were added to their number that day wow that's a, that's a lot of people in one day. A few weeks later in Acts 4.4, 4, it says, many who heard the message believed in the number of men. The number is so big it's becoming difficult to count, so they're just counting the men. The number of men grew to about 5,000. If that's just men, if you had women and children, it must be over 10,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem in those first days following the resurrection. Scholars estimate there were 30,000 people in Jerusalem in total. So one out of every three had committed their lives to this Jesus Christ in those days immediately surrounding the, the resurrection. What does that tell you? Those who had access to the evidence in mass quantity, thousands upon thousands are getting baptized and giving their lives to this new religion, this new Christ. Well... I can imagine a skeptic saying, Jeff, that's great and all, but you've read the Bible. And the Bible's written, the book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke, who was a Christian. Maybe he made up those numbers. You know, this 3,000 3, on the first sermon and 10,000 within weeks. Maybe that is just a lie. He made that up to sound good. Maybe the truth is that Christianity expanded very slowly in the first century and it was in later centuries that it grew. You know, a myth is developed over time and with distance from the actual historic- historical event so that the, the fictionalized story can just kind of happen. And so maybe that was the case. You know, those who had access to the evidence actually didn't believe. It was subsequent generations that were so far away from the evidence that they were the ones who built this myth and started talking about a resurrection and belief in a resurrection. Well, that's not the case. Uh, I, I, I admit it could be tempting to doubt the, the, uh, the apostle Luke because of his Christian bias. So let's turn to let's turn to uh, two guys who are first century historians who aren't Christians. The, the little card that I've uh, provided, you should have gotten it on your way and you need to pull it out at this time. Uh, it is really helpful. I, I'm going to argue I gave you pure gold, all right? This could change your life. It has mine. It's evidence. And you'll see the first section there, the Revolution, has the verses we've already looked at. But then it gets into two quotes from two first-century people Who are not believers. In fact, they were against Christianity. All right? This helps us know that this fact of its rapid expanse is a verifiable historical fact. The first one is Cornelius Tacitus. Cornelius Tacitus was a Roman emperor, no, I'm sorry, Roman governor over the region of Asia Asia Minor. Asia Minor was just north of Jerusalem. And so here was a guy of great intellect. Great power and great fascination with world events. And he wrote the Annals, a book about the history of his time. And here's what he said about Christ. Christ, the name of the founder, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea. But the destructive superstition broke out, not only in Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome as well. You know, anybody who tells you Jesus wasn't a historical figure is not studied, because here is a very credible non-Christian first century historian who's telling us not only did Jesus exist, he was killed by Pontius Pilate, and there was a superstition, most scholars actually recognize the word superstition to point to the belief in his resurrection, This superstition broke out throughout Judea, beyond, all the way to Rome. Here's another one. Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger is uh, another governor in, in first century Roman Empire. He's over an area called Bithynia, also to the north. And he wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan, The governors were required to give updates to the Roman emperor, and this is one of those updates. He says, Pliny says, "'The issue of the Christians seems important enough "'to seek your counsel, O emperor, "'especially on account of the number of those involved. "'For there are many of every age, "'every rank of both genders. "'This superstition has spread like a contagious disease.'" Not only in the cities and towns, but into the country villages as well. He says, yet, emperor, there is reason to hope it may be stopped. Go for it, Pliny. That ain't going to happen. Folks, uh, the fact that Christianity exploded in the first century is an undeniable historical fact. The people that had access to the witnesses who had talked with Christ, to the empty tomb... They voted with their lives in mass. It's true. That's the first piece of evidence. The revolution is the first event. The second is this the second event that occurred in the first century there is execution. Execution. And then you see the symbol that I have here. These are uh, Greek letters mu, rho, tau. And it's the abbreviation of the word martyr. Martyr. All right? I, I had the privilege of going to Rome and going into the ancient catacombs. And down in those catacombs, some of the grave sites are marked with these three letters indicating that the deceased who had been laying there was a martyr for the cause of Christ. All right? Martyrs. In the first century, Christians were killed for their stubborn belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why is this so important? I'll tell you why. Because the dominant theory back then, and probably still today, to explain why the tomb was empty. For those who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and have to explain why they couldn't produce a body, why the tomb was empty. You know what they say? They say the disciples deceived the world. That's the predominant theory. Even in the Bible, it acknowledges that theory existed in that time. The theory was that the disciples who wanted their religion to be a go so bad that they came up with an elaborate plan. They snuck to the tomb on the third day. They overcame the guards, or some say while the guards were sleeping, they snuck around. They stole the body. They destroyed the evidence. And then they started recruiting Uh, people who would be false witnesses, 500 of them. They got them together and they said, all right, now here's the deal. We're all going to say we saw him. And they had to kind of make their story in sync so it would be credible. And they got everybody to agree. All right, all 500 plus. Remember, let's deceive the world. Let's tell them we've met with the resurrected Christ. And that, that was the theory, that it was all a hoax. Which actually makes a little bit of sense. You know, if, if these guys were going to get rich through this hoax, if they were going to get, you know, just famous and have the easy life as a result of this, one could begin to believe. Maybe it was all trickery. But that's not how it worked out. They were killed, martyred for this belief. The, the, the main guys, the, the apostles, the, the disciples, do you know all of them except John? Remember there were 12? All of them except John were executed because they refused to say, no, it's not true. Do you die for a lie? Uh, let, me, let me show you, not only the apostles, but it, it goes beyond that. In, in the book of Acts, we find uh, the first Christian martyr in the very first days was a guy by the name of Stephen. Stephen was one of the top dogs in the church. I mean, he knew. He was in the inner circle. So that he knew if it was all a joke. He knew if, if this resurrected Christ was, in fact, met and celebrated or not. And look what it says. It says in Acts 7.59, While the members of the Sanhedrin were throwing stones at Stephen. Back then, when a court determined you were guilty of uh, and be, to be executed, they stoned you to death often. That's the case here. They were throwing stones at Stephen. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he said. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And with this said, he died. At any moment, Stephen could have said, all right, all right, we were just trying to trick you. This joke has gone bad. Please, please stop. Stop he would have been released. Does this sound like a guy who doesn't believe in this claim? Folks, Stephen and all of the other Christian martyrs, and there were thousands of them, went to their grave defending that this is true. Now, you say, but but maybe that's not. Maybe this whole, all these first century Christian martyrs, the disciples being martyred, maybe that's all fabricated in the Bible. And in fact, Christians did quite well back in that first century. And that's why they, well, let's go to another secular or non-believing source. Let's go back to Pliny the Younger. Remember Pliny? In his letter to Emperor Trajan, I'm reading again. Pliny tells the emperor, I've taken this course about those who have been brought to me as Christians. Here's what I do, emperor. He says, I asked them whether they were Christians or not. And if they confessed that they were Christians, I'd ask them again and a third time, intermixing threats with the questions. And if they persevered in their confession, I ordered them to be executed. This is life for first century Christians. Does it sound like a bunch of pranksters to you? No. When you're ready to go to your grave for this belief, it tells you that it's true. You know, my, my daughter Janae has helped me with this. She is a very skilled deceiver. Uh, Janae has developed the art of, of lying quite impressively. You know, for example, I will, I will say to the family, hey guys, we're going to do some chores for the next hour or so, okay? So I want all of you, and all of a sudden Janae goes, ah, 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 I'm like, Janae, what's wrong? She goes, Dad, I don't know what it is. I got the stomach ache that suddenly hit me. You know, really, I think I need to lay down, Dad. You know, and she's so good at it. But I'll call her buff. I'll say, Janae, I'm so sorry that you don't feel well. It's so disappointing. I was going to take the family out for ice cream, but obviously you're in no condition to do that. And she's like, Wait a minute, Dad, it just left me. Thank you, Lord. It just went away. You know, I am healed, you know. Here's what Janae's taught me. Liars are always lying because they're getting a benefit from it. That's why deception is used. Liars lie because there's something to be gained. When you lose all for a lie, you stop lying. And when we see these first century believers who all of them claimed, I'm telling you, I saw him resurrected. Either they really are telling the truth and they did, or they're all liars. And when we see them go to their grave for this belief, it tells us. They're telling the truth. So the first is the revolution. The second is the execution. And the third is the transformation. This is the uh, Greek letter delta. And if you're uh, a scientist, you know delta means change. And scientists also know that all change has a cause. When you see radical change, you, you, one of the questions scientifically that you'd ask is, what caused that change? And what I'd like to talk about is a life that changed radically. A life that changed radically right around the time of the, resu- the resurrection. And it begs the question, What? Co- I could have talked about Peter Look at Peter. It's so interesting. The Bible acknowledges that Peter turned his back on Jesus at the time of the crucifixion. That denied him. Fifty days later, Peter standing up in, in the middle of Jerusalem, boldly proclaiming Christ. You wonder what happened. How did the coward become so bold? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was the number one opponent to the cause of Christ, and then all of a sudden, the number one opponent to Christianity becomes the leading theologian and guy ready to give his life for the cause. What's the event? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one I want to talk about, though, is James. Jesus had a brother. All of his siblings were technically half-brothers. They shared the same mother, but not father. And in the case of James, uh, it starts off not so good. Here's John 7, verse 5. It says in the Bible that even his own brothers did not believe in him. What's so interesting is that even s- skeptics, even those who don't believe most of the Bible is true, will affirm this. Because it's opposed to Christianity, they'll say, yeah, that's true, all right? So those closest to Jesus, his own brothers, didn't believe in him. And I can imagine it. I, I can imagine James looking at his brother and saying, hey, bro, got messianic visions, do you? Think you're like hot stuff, king of kings, God in the flesh, savior of the world. Sorry, bro. Saw you wet the bed, you know, just not buying it. And, and there was uh, just a refusal to embrace and support his brother. That was at the beginning. Later on, though, we find this. Galatians 1.19, Paul writes, I saw none of the other apostles... Only James, the Lord's brother. Later on, James, the Lord's brother, becomes an apostle. Not only a believer, but a leader of believers. Not only an apostle, but the pastor, the head pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the capital city. And that's unbelievable that someone would go from this absolute denial to radical support. And one... Could, a skeptic could say, but again, you're telling what happened in James' life according to Christian authors. How do we know that's true? So let's go this time to a guy by the name of Flavius Josephus, non Christian, Jewish non Christian, probably the number one historian of the first century. He was so prolific in writing the events of the Mediterranean world in that day. And here's what Josephus writes He says, Albinius assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them James, the brother of Jesus, and some, compa- some of his companions. After Albinius formed an accusation against them as lawbreakers, he delivered them to be stoned. It is historical fact that the brother of Jesus gave his life Because of his unquenchable, passionate commitment to the religion of his brother. Which begs the question, what happened? How did James go from this critical, skeptical, oppositional brother to this leader of his brother's movement ready to die for the cause? What's the reason? Well, one short verse. 1 Corinthians, 15, 7. 1 Corinthians 15 lists all the people that the resurrected Christ appeared to. And sure enough, we come to verse 7. Then Jesus also appeared to James. <laughs> Can you imagine that moment? When James saw his resurrection, he saw him on the cross. He was dead as a doornail. And here James is face to face with his resurrected brother. And he said at that point, bro, I'm sorry. I was wrong guess it's true. Didn't see it coming. I'll give you my life. Folks, can we do a little review? A little review. Uh, Using these symbols again, uh, the explosive expanse, the revolution in the first century, those who had access to the facts, to the witnesses, to the open grave, they voted with their lives by the thousands that the resurrection is true. The martyrdom, the apostles, who were the ones proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, they were told, stop saying that or we'll kill you. And they said, all right, kill me. I'll be a martyr. And change lives. These opponents, at the time of the alleged resurrection, radically shifted their lives. Peter, Paul, James, and as a result of these transformations, what do they all say? They, they say that this fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was provided by God for them back then and for us 2,000 years later so that we can know, so that our faith, our belief in invisible spiritual realities can be based on reason and evidence and thought God says, I've given you proof by raising Jesus from the dead. I have a friend of mine named Abdu Murray. Abdu is just a great, great guy, brilliant. He's a lawyer, trial lawyer. So his expertise is analyzing the evidence and making deductions about what's logical from the evidence. And Abdu had a radical conversion. His story is so beautiful that I asked him if he'd share it. So me and a buddy who does video, we went to Abdu's house and we set up the cameras and we shot him sharing his story so I could share it with you. Here's Abdu Murray.
1: Well, my name is Abdu Murray. I was born into a Lebanese Muslim family, um, specifically a Shiite Muslim family. And I took my Islam pretty seriously and I was always challenged non-Muslims about their faith. They were a Christian, Jew, atheist, whatever it was. But there were the Christians occasionally who came back at me with a response to some of my challenges. So I began to study the Bible to use it against Christians, to find out where the holes were. So I decided to study to see if it actually is historically verifiable whether or not Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead. Well, I I was sitting in the den of my parents' home and i had been studying this stuff now for quite some time. uh, Hours and hours uh, on end for days and days on end and on the left side of me was all these books and articles and sticky notes and whatever it was for Islam Um, and other worldviews too that that contradicted the resurrection. And then on the right side of me was all the evidence for, for Christianity, for the gospel for the bible but specifically about the resurrection and playing on a computer behind me was a debate between a christian and a muslim about whether or not jesus rose from dead so i was surrounded by the evidence in, the, in quite the literal sense and then i realized something the opponents of christianity are starting to concede some of the historical facts that lead you to the conclusion that jesus was in fact raised and I'm a lover of evidence, I'm a lawyer by trade, and when you look at all the facts, you see that they add up. I had seen all the objections to it, but none of them worked. None of them, and I I wanted them to. I wanted the resurrection to not be a historical reality, but I had intellectually believed that it was, that he died on that cross, that he rose from the dead. I believed that in my mind. It was just a fact. I couldn't run away from anymore. And i began to ask myself why in the world won't i accept it though why won't i not just believe that it happened but believe in it and then i realized something all the things i could lose whether it was identity or family or relationships that i had i feared losing by a decision to follow jesus because he did in fact rise from the dead i felt that that cost was too much for me i couldn't pay that and i realized at that very moment that that's why i wasn't a believer not because I couldn't believe it in my mind but because I wouldn't believe it in my heart. And I remember reading uh, Romans 5, where Paul says, this is how we know God loves us, essentially, that while we were yet sinners, God's enemies, but while we hated him, Christ died for the ungodly. When I realized that, I saw the historical realities of it, that Jesus, bloody, tattered, beaten, swollen on that cross, paid a price, But I was gonna say, sorry, not good enough. When I realized that my own seemingly petty costs were keeping me from accepting that, is when I decided that this single truth is the most important truth you can communicate to somebody else. And so I really do feel this is worth giving your life for, and I actually have.